This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi there, this is Seth Abramovich, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter, and this is another episode of It Happened in Hollywood. This week, we have the groundbreaking literary series that influenced everything from Knives Out to Bandersnatch, that interactive episode of Black Mirror. All that and more on this week's It Happened in Hollywood. Okay, you're seated, you have your headphones on, you're ready to listen to another episode of It Happened in Hollywood. Do you want to stay there and just keep listening to the episode, or do you want to answer that door? You choose to answer the door. Oh, there's a lion there. He just ate you. You're dead. All right, if you're confused, don't be. What I'm doing is laying out the basic gameplay of the Choose Your Own Adventure book series. This was a series that really entranced me as a kid. Is it literary greatness? Probably not, but it was definitely enough to keep me preoccupied for hours at a time. Each volume in the series would set you in a different milieu, kind of like a video game. So there was... Uh, I remember one called Deadwood City. So you're in a cowboy, uh, you know, Old West situation. There was one called Who Killed Harlow Thromby? And that was a very Agatha Christie type um, mystery set at an old mansion. And then the first one was called The Cave of Time. And that one, you went into a cave uh, on a hike and it spit you out into all different uh, eras. Anyway, these books were all created by a guy named Edward Packard. Edward is 91 years old, and he's still very spry, very bright, and very much with us. And I reached out to him. It was basically like reaching out to God. This guy, the name Edward Packard to me as a kid, I I could never in my wildest dreams imagine actually meeting and asking him all the questions I had about his creation. But he reached out back to me and said he'd love to. So if you don't mind, this week we're going to take a little bit of a side trip away from film and TV into the world of Choose Your Own Adventure. And I think if you're interested at all in video games, in interactive storytelling, I think you'll really get a kick out of it. Clearly, the the makers of Black Mirror got a kick out of it, enough to create an episode that has basically the same structure. You're given uh, branches and you choose which way to go. 
and they ended up uh, suing <laughs> the makers of Choose Your Own Adventure. Uh, Edward was not part of the of the company at that point, so he is not involved in that lawsuit. But I thought that was an interesting little tidbit. Anyway, without further ado, here is Edward Packard, and we're going to talk all things Choose Your Own Adventure. Edward Packard, thank you for joining us on It Happened in Hollywood. Delighted to be here. Now, um, typically on the show, we have uh, film directors, actors, screenwriters. This We're going to try something a little different this week, but I feel that your contribution to the cultural landscape and to storytelling is as major as any of these uh, other guests that we've had. So... Um, If the audience is not familiar with Choose Your Own Adventure, it is a series of interactive books that even predates uh, video game storytelling that completely captivated me in my youth and um, has uh, had uh, ripple effects across uh, all of uh, culture. And um, you, Mr. Packer, are the name on the cover of these books that so thrilled me as a child. And it's almost like I'm talking to God or something, but here you are right in front of me. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you for joining me and making my childhood dreams come true. Well, thank you. Uh, Of course, just for those who aren't, aren't aware of it, it should be clarified that this is a series uh, started, uh, It's well, it had precursors, but anyway, the main series was produced by Bantam Books, and it started about 1979, and uh, they threw all their weight behind it, and uh, for quite a while, uh, some years, they, we were putting out one book a month, and uh, as a result, we were there were good many writers who were involved in it, and uh, I I wrote uh, most of. For instance, there was another guy. Well, <laughs> it's such a complicated story; it's hard to dis- distill it into a few words. But I couldn't place my book to begin with with an established publisher, and place it with a small press, and the fellow who uh, was co-owner of that named Ray Montgomery. Uh, and I ended up getting a contract with Bantam, and as I said, for a while they put out one book a month so that Bantam uh, assigned six books to each of us for several years during the heyday of this series, and I provided six, and Ray provided six, but six were too many books to write of decent quality in one year, so we each hired subcontractor writers to write some of the books. So although Ray and I each wrote more in the series than anyone else, there were a number of other writers involved. And so that's how that worked. So let's go back to the beginnings of Choose Your Own Adventure. Now, you were telling me earlier that you started not as a, as a writer or a creative at all. You were a lawyer working in the music industry. Well, yeah, I was a lawyer. I had a number of jobs during my legal career. I graduated from law school in 1959, so it wasn't until really about 19... Well, then I I wrote the first of these books in 1969, but I couldn't get it published. So I continued on as a lawyer, and I I didn't quit practicing law until about 1978 or in, in around there. Which record company did you work for? Well, I started out at a big Wall Street law firm, mm-hmm. uh, which I 
got me very depressed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then I worked for a small suburban law firm. And then I worked uh, for RCA Records as a house counsel. Uh, uh, RCA Records was a much bigger factor in those days, uh, although it was a little bit of eclipsed by Columbia Records, um, uh, who had a much stronger uh, repertoire in uh, pop and rock. And where were you living at the time? I was living in Greenwich, Connecticut. And, and at that time, it, I was uh, commuting in on the train to New York uh, every day, and uh, which was part of the story because it was, uh, I, I thought up the idea for the, for the Choose Your Own Adventure with my first book, which was titled Sugar Cane Island, by telling bedtime stories to my kids. And then I started writing up the story, writing the train in in to New York and back, amazing. So so you there you were uh, doing this you know uh, white collar job and f- being frustrated and bored and um, you had these uh, ambitions to be a writer and you, and then so uh, tell me a bit more about how you formulated the idea for the choose your own adventure through the storytelling to your daughter. Well, like some parents, I was making up stories for kids to tell them bedtime stories. And uh, I had my, my uh, two older kids were girls, and I uh, thought of a story about a kid named Pete, and Pete gets shipwrecked on, an, on a remote island. A little bit of a takeoff on Robinson Crusoe, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, I actually, as I, <laughs> I'm sure is really the case, if I'd been a better storyteller, I would have. Uh, just told them a great story and good night, kids. And uh, but I got stuck, like many storytellers. What comes next? <laughs> and so I got asking them, "Well, what should Pete do next?" And then I and they had different ideas. So that's how I thought of the idea that uh, suppose it said of Pete being the character, it's you, and you have to decide what to do next. So the idea of of, of setting them in the second person. Uh, came very uh, right at the beginning. It came naturally, because I was saying, "What what would you do if you were Pete? You know, would you uh, walk along the beach and look for something along the beach, or climb up the rocky hill?" And uh, that was the first choice. <laughs> now I remember as a kid there was a guide to how I could write my own, and it it seems like there's a real like mathematics to it, or or how did you figure out the the map? I don't know if you'd call it mathematics. It's like a computer flow chart, uh, I guess. Uh, I um, make a chart that looked like a tree lying on its side. And uh, the, the, the trunk of the tree at the bottom would be the, you know, the opening. And then uh, there'd be uh, the story begins. And then remember, this tree is lying on its side. And then above a branch, I'd write what a choice would be. And below the branch, I would write what would happen, just a key words. And so when I did that and had my whole tree lying on its side with all these different branches and different uh, choices and different things that happened after you made the choice, then I, I have an outline for the book. If you don't do something like that, you get very confused trying to write one of these books. And so Sugarcane Island, so you finished it, and what happened to it? Well, at uh, at RCA Records, I knew a, a guy, I had a, a fellow I worked with a little bit. Uh, he had a good friend who was a, a, a literary agent, William Morris Agency. 
And uh, he said, you ought to show it to Don uh, at, at uh, this guy. So Don, I did. And I, uh, Don, it was Don Gold at the time, as his name was. And he liked it a lot. And he said, I think I can sell this to a publisher. And so he sent it around to the big publishers. And they all said, oh, this is this won't do at all. This is too weird. Uh, <laughs> and some said, it's too much like a game, you know, and not a real book. And uh, I thought, this is not a, a very enlarged view of what publishing could be, because it's really, if it, if it can be in put in book form and put in a bookstore and sell copies, don't you get it? <laughs> That's where the business you're in, not whether, whether worrying that whether it's in the right category. But anyway, they didn't think that way. And one, one guy said he thought it was, it's, hard to get kids to read these days and you're just making it harder making them having to make choices and <laughs> he didn't understand <laughs> the principles of psychology or motive motivation and so forth so anyway strange enough don finally says he said uh, i'm really surprised i can't get anybody to publish it so i got discouraged i put it in a desk drawer and then it wasn't until uh, several years later, uh, this was 1969, it wasn't until about 1976, that I was uh, skiing in Vermont for uh, a little quickie vacation and uh, saw uh, at the place, they didn't call them B Air B&Bs then, they called them, uh, I guess, just a... <laughs> Bed and breakfast. It was like uh, somebody's home, home with a couple of. Uh, and they they uh, had they could accommodate several guests, um, and they had a uh, in the living room. I found a copy of Vermont Life magazine, and it said small. And it was a story in it about a, a small press that was looking for innovative children's books, they said. So I thought, well, mine's innovative. So it had to <laughs> sitting in the desk drawer. So I sent it to them. And uh, that, that's how it got started with the small press. Uh, but although the small press got off to a good start for them, they simply didn't have the distribution clout to really uh, bring, bring into being a series that could take off. So... Uh, there are a lot of complexities, but that's how the very beginning was, and and how it and then eventually got to Bantam, which really saw the potential for it. And at that time, by the way, nearly all children's books were hardcover. It was just thought that that's the way you do children's book, and most the the paperbacks were much less prominent in the market than they became later. I remember in college uh, I, I, uh, seeing that uh, I think it was while I was in college I saw these books for, from France and they were in paperback and I I remember being surprised saying, yeah, that's a good idea, this paperback business. Anyway, Bantam uh, not only wanted to bring it out in paperback, but in mass market paperback, where you, they could go in racks in bookstores and uh, at a lower price, and uh, they could be featured in a way that uh, rather than just tucked back in the children's book section in a bookcase, and that had a huge uh, impact. So I have a couple questions. First of all, choose your own adventure. 
Was that your name for them? No. Uh, my When I first wrote Sugarcane Island, I titled it The Adventures of You on Sugarcane Island. But the uh, <laughs> Mountain Crossroads Press, the small press, uh, they said, you know, that's a little bulky. Why not just call it Sugarcane Island? So I said, all right. And uh, then after that got published, and they were very pleased with it and got off to a good start. And they got some good endorsements uh, from kids in the local school. But I had the feeling that they really couldn't market this thing the way it needed to be. And they kind of sensed that themselves. So about this uh, time, maybe about a year or two after Sugarcane Island, yeah, about a year after Sugarcane Island got published, I had a friend... So much of this works because you have a friend who has a friend. <laughs> I, had a, <laughs> right. I had a friend who had a friend who was a worked for Lippincott, which was then a well-established oh. uh, publisher. They were later bought by uh, Harper and Row. Uh, these the mergers in the publishing industry, you know, have just been unbelievable. But uh, so Lippincott liked the uh, met an editor there, and they published. Two of my books, uh, the next two books I wrote, uh, which was a Western called Deadwood City. And then uh, I remember it well, a space one called Third Planet from Altar. And they put the legend. They thought up the legend, Choose Your Own Adventure. So they put it on the on the cover of Deadwood City, the first book, Choose Your Own Adventures. They use the plural in the Wild West, and then for Third Planet of Altar, they said, choose your own adventures in outer space. Well, uh, then they asked for a third book, and uh, I, I gave him a third book that was about, you just won New York, which you, you won in a contest, you won New York, you won a free weekend, and you could spend as much as you wanted to do, you go to a Yankees game, go to a Broadway musical, uh, take the circle around, and you could do all, all kinds of things, and all kinds of things would happen to you in the book. So I thought it was pretty good. But they said, oh, most kids throughout the country aren't that interested in New York City. Uh, you've got to think of something else. Meanwhile, Ray Montgomery, the small press guy, uh, through a complicated <laughs> series of events, uh, uh, got an agent who was good had a good relationship with uh, an editor at Bantam named Joel Del Borgo, and and she and Ray presented a book, Journey Under the Sea, to uh, to Amy, and Amy presented to Joel, and Joel said said this could be a really great series, and apparently she. Uh, well, not apparently. It's actually been written up in the, uh, and uh, I've talked to Joelle many times. She prevailed upon Oscar Distel, who was the president of, B- of Bantam. And Bantam was a, a paperback powerhouse at the time uh, to really go all out on the series. So they decided they'd put out six books right away launch it with uh, with a big splash and uh, send copies to teachers and people and books uh, really go at it and uh and so it turned out that they uh joelle wanted me me in on it because i was the 
started it all and was already doing the books at Lippincott. And Ray had, was the one who started the con- made the contact with Bantam through his the agent Amy Burkauer at Writer's House, who was a friend of Joel's and had a good relationship with her. So anyway, uh, we all got together on the same page for a while. (laughs) So Bantam, of course, looked at my books. They said, hmm, choose your own adventures. That's a pretty good idea. And the the living cot was asleep on the switch. And is that the right phrase? At the switch. And they didn't, they had thought of of trademarking it. And I was asleep at at the switch because I hadn't thought of trademarking it. And uh, so Bannon just slapped it on, registered it, and off to the races. And that's where Choose Your Own Adventure came from. It was really invented by somebody in the marketing department of Lippincott who probably said, no, why didn't I get some credit for that? (laughs) Some (laughs) aggrieved marketing person wondering where their cut is. Yeah. And you seem to have not mentioned the Cave of Time, but to me that was the first one, the Cave of Time. So where did that did did that fit in? Yeah, well, I in the first contract with Bantam, I had to write. I had six books were to be in that, and that was before we got one book a month. So we were doing twelve per year. But in the first contract was just for six books, and I had to supply three. So I thought, oh, sort of time travel this is a good idea. But my my uh, daughter Andrea uh, said uh, she had she'd gone and she'd been at camp and gone into a cave in Vermont and uh, exploring a, this cave. And she she was thinking of a cave, and she said, why not a cave of time where you have a different uh, tunnels that go off, but instead of going to some remote part of the cave they come out into the into the open but it's not it's not in the same place anymore it's not in the same time anymore you're in a different time and so i thought this is more interesting and fresh than a time machine than the original concept of hg wells um and so that's how we got that that going uh, the the uh, cave of time being the vehicle for time travel stories now, one of the things that kind of struck me as a kid was that you didn't pull punches. If you if you made the wrong choice, you were dead, <laughs> and and in very creative ways. Yeah. And it was kind of there was something fundamentally kind of uh, terrifying but exciting about the idea that at any turn of a page you could die. Were you at all concerned that you might be uh, scarring young children? Well, I, I felt the the kids that should these kids were uh, just, it was designed for eight to twelve years old kids, and later Bantam and we we brought out a series for younger kids, really little kids, called the Skylark series, and those that was for like first, second, and third grade, and the basic series is for fourth, fifth, and sixth. We felt by this by that age, uh, and at the beginning, I felt when I first wrote Sugar Kainan, I thought. Well, if you do it the right way, you know, it's it's taught it's it's kind of can be fun. So for instance, I think my very first choice almost no not the first choice, but the first first one of the first choices in Sugarcane Island was where you you are you get caught in quicksand 
and uh, you have to figure out how to uh, what to do because you're going to begin thinking. And as you probably know, just in case you're ever caught in quicksand, you got to roll over and roll out of the place as if you were in the water. Because if you if you're standing up and struggling, you'll sink down. But if your weight is distributed, then you can roll out of it. So I had read That's that. Good thing. to know. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, you never know. <laughs> so, so uh, I said, this is a good choice. But in the in the case where you fail to do that, the right thing, uh, you uh, the the ending was, but you're going down, you're going down, and then it says glug glug glug, you know. So it, it's, it's a humorous touch in it, and uh, also it was that way, and it, it turned out. I, the kids loved loved to die in this way because they knew <laughs> it wasn't they weren't really really doing it. As a matter of fact, the, the, I, I think I was influenced by there was a psychiatrist named Bruno Bettelheim who wrote a book about children's literature and why they, why why do kids love this scary stuff? So, um, uh, some of the scary things that happened. He said it's it's because they can come to grips with that kind of thing without being terrified because they, they understand that helps them separate fantasy from reality and so forth. And um, there was some of that to it. A lot of it has to do with the tone. For instance, you could describe going, <laughs> dying in quicksand in a way that would be terrifying to a child, but if you say glug, 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 then it, it, it kind of is acceptable. Just an interesting aside is that Bruno Bettelheim book inspired Into the Woods, the musical, which is also a very dark uh, children's story with a lot of death in it. So there is something to that, that there is an appetite for the macabre uh, amongst youngsters, not just adults. Now, another question I have about your storytelling is, well, I mean, what did it teach you about psychology? And I, I know not all the the choices provided were just, you know, choose path A or B, but were actual moral quandaries that you were presenting to children. Yeah, the, the, well, I uh, tried to have all kinds of situations, some, some choices where, for instance, not knowledge of or, or, or your instinctive sense would be what would guide you to a better choice. Uh, but occasionally we'd have choices where there was kind of a moral thing. And I made it a rule. I, I made it a rule that, the, that I assumed that the reader was a good person, a decent person. And so uh, the person might make stupid choices, of course, or might make choices which are kind of selfish and not really thoughtful of others, but they never make a cruel choice, a, a choice to be cruel or to be criminal. So there were some moral situations where there were moral ambiguity, uh, whether you're going to help somebody out, uh, uh, even though it's put, you're putting yourself at considerable risk. And, you know, there were situations where a philosopher or a psychologist or an ethicist could... Uh, make something of it, but uh, these are rather simplified versions. But uh, that, that kind of having some some situations like that, I think, uh, made, made, made the books richer than they would have been if they were just strictly 
uh, analytical situations where, you know, you just weigh this con, pro and this con. I also should say, by the way, that I thought that the, the book should be kind of like life. And in life, you try to make it lifelike. And in life, you may there may be a better choice, a choice that's clearly better, but it doesn't always work out. There's a lot of probabilities involved. So uh, irony is at work <laughs> in life. And so I uh, try to have some situations where, yeah, you, you made the wrong choice, but things worked out after all, or you made the right choice, but it didn't work out, uh, to try to reflect the actual situation in life. Exactly, yeah. You could choose the altruistic choice, but then you end up getting shot in the foot, which is, life is too often like that, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, Try to have it, have it rewarded enough so that you think it's a good general policy to be <laughs> decent. That's what's part of what made them so successful, is that you did not talk down to kids. This was not a, a Sunday school lesson you were trying to provide. You were trying to provide real entertainment. I, I, went, I went around to, to different schools and talked at schools and so forth. Uh, fifth, usually it was the fourth, fifth, or sixth grade. And uh, I would run, have a blackboard, and I'd ask the kids, and we'd, we'd, we'd make up a, 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 a book, so to speak, at the, uh, in that. And once afterwards, sometimes I'd meet with parents, and uh, oh, one fellow came up and he said, you could do a lot for if you do a Christian one, you know, and I thought, well, I don't want to get into that kind of uh, moralizing where the, everything is, is, is all set out and follows a particular prescription for what's good. That's not uh, not kind of book I would want to write. Well, th there you go. There's uh, two lessons for storytelling. No New York City visits and no, and no, religious moralizing <laughs> well i would have done the new york city one but but uh, i would go for that but not the religious moralizing yeah um well i like i said at the top you know i think that a lot of screenwriters certainly of my generation gen x uh, looked to to your books as inspiration for future uh, storytelling uh, attempts i know i did I will say selfishly that my favorite was Who Killed Harlow Thromby, the uh, the murder mystery. Um, yeah. It just uh, totally tickled me and and titillated and scared me, and it it was everything. I loved it, and it reappeared very uh, unexpectedly when uh, Ryan Johnson released his movie Knives Out, when the victim was very closely named to Harlow Thromby. He was named Harlan Thromby. Yeah, Harlan um, Thromby. Harlan Thromby. Actually. I I got a. I get letters sometimes from former fans. They're usually about your age, you know. Right, <laughs> right. I said, "You better look at this uh, knives. What is it? Knives out or something?" Uh, he said, "They're they ripping you off." Well, I I saw that movie, and they weren't ripping me off. It was. It had all the very, very slightest generic similarities, but but the, the name Harlan Thromby definitely sounded like yes. You could. Uh, I I didn't consider it a ripoff. It was just uh, amused me. I am Alan Stevens, personal lawyer for best-selling mystery novelist Harlan Thromby. Harlan's will states that a significant part of his fortune be given to his fans. What? You're a pack of vultures at the feast. Now, now, feast bloody. <laughs> 
So I want to ask about, you know, once the, the books really took off, uh, your, you know, things really must have changed for you very quickly. So I know, uh, first of all, you know, there was a big New York Times article about it, and then you were on the Today Show. Right. What was media celebrity like for a, a um, low-key lawyer like yourself? Well, uh, I wouldn't call it uh, quite media celebrity because we remember uh, was it Andy Warhol said everybody has their 15 minutes of fame well uh, Andy Warhol I yes my 15 minutes of fame particularly uh with the today show and uh I remember I was walking around Manhattan and the, the, the next day uh or the day or that afternoon or something and some i saw somebody looking at me with their head turning where did i didn't i see you recently i thought this must be how it how it is for a celebrity with people turning out their their, their heads to stare at you but uh that didn't last long <laughs> but certainly the uh the sales i mean what kind of sales figures were you getting in those early days? My first books uh, sold over a million copies, and then then it began to trickle down uh, rapidly from there. The uh, in fact, most most people who recall books and say, oh, "I love this book," or "I love that book," or I "Remember this," they're nearly all talking about books in the first uh, twenty books, say, uh, because the series like. Anything that gets very popular, it runs into a bell curve where it, it goes up and then it, it, it drifts downward. But the first, certainly the, the all for a long time they sold very well, but the first books were the ones that really uh, piled up the big figures. Did it make you fabulously wealthy? No, no, because actually, uh, my first of all, I had uh, a lot of. People had cuts in my uh, in my uh, <laughs> income, and then when I was when I was making the most money, the tax rate was much higher. Uh, I <laughs> this is something uh, progressive politicians though, like Robert Reich will remind people that uh, you know at the beginning in the of Reagan's era it was around fifty percent, and then there was a state tax and so forth. Then there was a lot of. Uh, I had a lot of expenses with uh, various personal things and kids and uh, not making very good decisions and so forth. So I never, and uh, I never became fabulously wealthy. And I didn't really have much, I couldn't see much difference between being well, comfortable and fabulously wealthy as far as actual <laughs> I was was concerned, so um, so I I didn't have to worry about money, and that's all I cared about. So you you could you didn't you never had to be a lawyer again once the books took no, off. I, yeah, that was a big plus <laughs> because I, <laughs> I I it was I really it was the wrong career for me. I was sleepwalking when I went through my law career, and it was uh, as I really only realized much later. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you write something that sells a million copies and it's, you know, beloved by children, it's fantasy and sci-fi, I assume Hollywood comes calling at some point. Did they? Because it was interactive, Hollywood uh, wasn't set up to do interactive movies. Uh, and when they and what interactive movies they've done, I, as far as I know, haven't been tremendous uh, tremendous hits. But they've turned things like slinkies and they've turned toys into movies. So I would think maybe they could turn one of your books into a movie. Well, they could have done. They would have been. They should have, <laughs> but they. That's what I I actually uh, wrote some other book series after I, I got uh, writing all kinds of things, and one of the series I wrote, uh, which didn't go over very well, was called ESP McGee, and it was about <laughs> a boy detective named ESP McGee, and, and like Sherlock Holmes and so many other. Movies. Uh, I I was big fan of Nero Wolf books, uh, and uh, Nero Wolf had an assistant named Archie Goodwin, and it was like Watson for Holmes. And so I had a kid who was uh, ESP McGee's buddy, and he narrated this. And there, and you could the idea was that he solved mysteries, and you never could tell whether he did it by ESP or not. But anyway. That actually got optioned by Paramount, uh, and they renewed it twice, but they didn't go ahead with a movement to make a movie out of it. Uh, that was my only experience uh, with Hollywood. And then what about uh, with the rise of video games? Did you have uh, interactive narrative people reaching out? or After the series ended, it wasn't... Uh, I, I, I didn't have anything going while I was writing the books. But when the, by the time the series ended and the, the, my former fans became producers and game producers, and they, they were, at that point, they, I got approached by several. And a guy, in, it was, they were published in Spanish and, and uh, were very popular in Spanish. A guy in Chile made a, something that, was like you you it was sort of an animation kind of thing i can't even explain it but that was i had that and uh that these guys they really put a lot into it and they did good product but they had trouble really uh making it work economically i had a guy in spain uh did a in barcelona who really put a lot of time and money and and talent into making a text-based computer game uh, based on one of my escape books. This is a book where you, you're uh, marooned on, a, on an island of a distant planet and you have, uh, have to try to escape from it. Uh, and uh, we got very far in that, but he... He, he taught computer science at the University of Barcelona. He had a couple of kids, and he just ran out of time and money to pursue it. And then I had a guy in uh, Amsterdam, the Netherlands, and he, he approached me a few years ago, and uh, we made something for Alexa, Amazon's Alexa, 
called one of my books called Journey to the Year 3000. And I had another guy who uh, did something. So I've had four, four uh, three or four or five projects of this sort. And the one, particularly the one based on escape, I thought was and uh, terrifically uh, had terrific potential, but it was somebody trying to do it in in their spare time and with without limited capital and and resources and uh, um, so and didn't have the the marketing tie-in and so they they didn't nobody hit the hit the sweet spot as far as marketing went uh, with any of these. Uh, and so they they weren't they weren't remunerative, but they were very interesting. I established some uh, very satisfying relationships with people from different countries. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of our listeners are probably too young to remember this, but the first video games were text-based interactive video games uh, like Zork and uh, Oregon Trail and. They were very similar to a Choose Your Own Adventure book. Just they would appear on your early Apple computer. Yeah, yeah. In text I form. I didn't follow that whole scene very much. I uh, I only got involved in it to the extent somebody approached me, but I liked their, what they were trying to do. Now I have to imagine that with such a successful and innovative product, you've had your your share of imitators over the years, and I remember one called. Which way books? Do you remember these these knockoffs? That was a a a, a, a subsidiary of a paper of uh, pocketbooks titled Archway Publishing. Then they published paperback books for kids, and so they couldn't use Choose Your Own Adventure because Bantam had the trademark. So they had to think up another trademark, and they thought up Which Way. And actually, Sugarcane Island uh, was. Uh, which was still controlled by the small press, Vermont Crossroads Press, before Bannum, before the Bannum deal, they made a deal with with the. Uh, while I was doing Lippincott, they were they made a deal with Archway to put uh, put out Sugarcane as a Witchway book, and I think it appeared as a Witchway book briefly, but once but it was. Once Bantam came forward and with this powerhouse marketing, the Which Way, which may have put out a couple of other books titles besides uh, Sugarcane, uh, faded, and Bantam gobbled up the rights to uh, not only the Lippincott books that I had written, but also the Which Way. When Sugarcane Island was eventually reissued uh, by Bantam as part of the Choose Your Own Adventure series. And it, because the original Sugarcane Island, which was published by Vermont Crossroads Press, and uh, briefly by Witchway, as I remember, it was a little bit short for uh, a basic, for the fit in with the series. So I had to write some extra material for, uh, for Bantam's edition of Sugarcane Island. So, which way was one of the others? Uh, one of the series. Uh, a, a guy I knew, uh, package book packager, uh, put out a series called Time Machine, which was the same, but all time travel books, but uh, based following the Choose Your Own Adventure uh, format. 
And there were some others, there were some other imitators also copying the same format, but with the same trademark. And because when Choose Your Own Adventure series, after it went out of print, out of production in the late 1990s, Random House by then had owned Bantam, and they abandoned the trademark, and Ray Montgomery, uh, the the former for small press publisher, picked uh, picked up the trademark and started his own company called Chooseco. And Chooseco continues to release these books in this format under the Choose Your Own Adventure trademark, which they own. And I'm uh, totally out of the picture in that regard. The uh, in a, some years ago. Uh, maybe around 2012 or 13, my agent, who <laughs> became Amy Burke at Writer's House, got a contract for me for with uh, Simon & Schuster. We put out three of my favorite books in expanded revised editions, but I couldn't use the Choose Your Own Adventure trademark, so we invented the trademark U-Ventures, and these books are very good, but because they didn't have the Choose Your Own Adventure trademark, they didn't they didn't get uh, much attention, and that, they they were all out of print. So it, now, if I wanted to purchase the original run, my, like the classic ones, like T- Cave of Time and Who Killed Harlow Thromby, Deadwood City, uh, are those available? Yeah, you'd really have to get them from used book dealers uh, or. You can get them. Most titles are available from used book dealers through Amazon or Pals in uh, Portland, Oregon, this big, tremendous uh, bookstore in Portland. But but they are not in, currently in print. You can't get new right. versions. You cannot get new copies you can, unless you get a one that's been preserved, you know, as a vintage. Uh, some people... Uh, collect them, you know, and... and yeah, what is a, a first edition Cave of Time worth? Mint condition. I, don't, I really don't know. I haven't followed it, but uh, I, I, you know, I've told my kids uh, and grandkids that have copies of these books that keep them in very, very careful. Like the first edition of Sugar Cane Island, I imagine is, uh, will, if not already, will someday be quite a collector's item and, and valuable. But I, I haven't uh, I haven't checked up on that. Yeah, I was buying these books alongside my Return of the Jedi action figures, and had I only saved those, yeah, but yeah. Uh, they've all been lost to the sands of time. <laughs> yeah, I had the. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have quite a few things that I wish I hadn't thrown out, such as the 1939 Spencer fireworks catalog. Uh, in those days, my brother and I used, were able to order fireworks from Spencer's Fireworks Company in Polk, Ohio, and have them shipped Railway Express. And uh, so the, the Spencer Fireworks catalog was one of the great publications of all time. They had fireworks. <laughs> I, I'm sure that they, they go, uh, copies in good condition, I'm sure, go for a lot of money that would make a good de- demise in a choose your own adventure book. You get blown up by Spencer fireworks. 
Glug, glug, glug. But um, I, I, just talking about the imitators, much more recently, uh, Netflix had uh, their, their interactive episode of, of Black Mirror, Bandersnatch, which works exactly like a choose-your-own-adventure. You, you watch a scene, and then you're given an option of which choice you want to make, and then that determines which scene comes next until you reach a conclusion. We're going to be a hit factory, like Motel, but for computer games. You heard it here first. I understand you. It's an adventure game based on the book. Jerome F. Davies was a genius. See that bloke who went cuckoo and cut his wife's head off? When it's a concert piece, a bit of madness is what you need. Now, I understand that that led to a lawsuit. Were you involved in that lawsuit? Oh, no, because uh, that lawsuit was brought by Chisco, which, as I mentioned, uh, uh, acquired the, uh, the, the trademark, Choose Your Own Adventure, and they have zealously uh, protected it. So uh, I, I, I'm not, not involved with that at all. Did you experience Bandersnatch at all? I'm wondering what you thought of it. I didn't watch it. I'm, I'm just involved in other things and really at this point you know, i've been working on a on novel a science fiction novel and so my my whole pre my whole emotional psychic energy is going into other things of a sudden <laughs> you you have better things to do than to watch bandersnatch <laughs> but you know it was hollywood's biggest hat tip to to what you created you know certainly and it was a big success so um it was really nice to see it even though uh, maybe your former partners uh, were not too thrilled with with the creative liberties taken. I have to ask, what's your favorite Choose Your Own Adventure, whether it's a single book or a choice you gave or a death? Like, do you have a, a personal favorite? Well, I think it's it's affected by letters I've gotten from former fans and what they've liked and so forth. And, and uh, I think the, the, my two favorites have become those. One, one is the Inside UFO 5440, which has become quite famous within certain circles because it was a space thing. And you, in the course of the book, you learn about a planet, Ultima, which is just everything. It's just terrific there. It's, uh, it's just like paradise, everything you'd want. And so um, how do you get there? And, and, uh, but as the as the warning page at the beginning of the book tells you, you can't get there the ordinary way. Don't it's not that easy, and um, it turns out that there's no choice that leads to Ultima. It's just a page uh, in the book, uh, the certain page about eighty five or maybe it's ninety two or I don't know, uh, where Ultima you you've arrived there. So you only get to Ultima by not following the choices, not doing what you normally do. And if you just tried every choice that's given in the book, you wouldn't get to Ultima. So uh that I even got a letter from a, somebody saying that a Zen monk had described this as a very Buddhist uh kind of situation that you you can't get there by trying to get there uh so i love that that that, i think that was that was good and then there's another book i wrote that's gotten a lot of i've gotten a lot of mail about which is hyperspace which is a book in which i try to have everything as weird as possible um 
and extra dimensions and so forth. And in that book, I actually appear as a character in the book. Uh, and you, the reader, are in, are in a bad situation, but here I come along, and you, the reader, uh, feel, oh boy, I've got the author of the story. I, he can help me. I can get out of this situation. But uh, unfortunately, uh, I fell through a, a crack into the extra dimension and so I wasn't able to help but anyway that was I like this idea of having something that's really surprising you know in a way beyond just a, a plot point well I love both those examples the first one Ultima uh, is a great metaphor for what you've done you you did not play by the rules and uh, you produced something absolutely uh, like Valhalla to me at least and the second one, it just reminded me of how much uh, you you played with reality and creativity. And you were my first, I think, uh, approach uh, or, or brush with uh, mind expansion. Uh, you, you, you went there and uh, you opened my mind and uh, it, it totally changed uh, the way I perceive art and creativity and narrative. So I just want to thank you personally. It's a thrill to be able to do that face to face. Well, thank you. It's, it's a thrill for me to talk to you and, and hear, hear these good things. And so you're still writing. How old are you now? 91. Unbelievable. You look much younger than 91. Well, uh, I've told people there's three things you got to do. One is eat right, exercise right, and be lucky. So unfortunately, you can't control the last one, but uh, uh, so far I've had it. And um, so, yeah. And so another thing is I read, I read recently that when for old people, it's, it's, a, it's good to, to stimulate your mind in different ways. And they gave a list of ways that you keep your mind stimulated. And one is reading novels because you have to keep track of all the characters and development and so forth. And I thought it's even better for your mind if you write a novel because it's even more demanding. And so, so I found that to be true. Well put. I'm I'm going to head out and do some exercise and um, maybe not write a novel, but but maybe read one or or maybe even a choose your own adventure. I hope you're lucky too. <laughs> yes, I hope I'm lucky too. Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Packard, Edward Packard, the creator, the genius behind the Choose Your Own Adventure series. Such a thrill to have you on It Happened in Hollywood. Many thanks. Wow, what an exciting moment for me to be able to uh, have actually interviewed Edward Packard. That was sort of a childhood dream come true. And um, how amazing that he took something as traditional and immutable as a book and turned it into a game for kids. I, I just really admire him. And I, I love how creative he's remained even in his 90s. So thank you, Edward Packard, for giving us the world Choose Your Own Adventure books. Uh, next week, we'll be back to movies, so no more reading, even the choose-your-own-adventure kind. Uh, what we're going to do is have an actor of, who's long been one of my favorites. His name is Griffin Dunn, and you probably know him from uh, American Werewolf in London, and also this incredible film from Martin Scorsese. Probably not the genre you associate with him. There are no gangsters anywhere. This is not a historic epic. This was a small comedy he made when Last Temptation of Christ fell through the first time. 
and he found himself uh, needing a project. After Hours is 1985. It also stars Rosanna Arquette, who, if you'll recall, was also the star of Desperately Seeking Susan, I believe from the same year. This was a real breakout year for her. And uh, it's just delicious movie uh, set in Soho in New York before Soho gentrified, where it was full of all kinds of after hours weirdos. And uh, this one kind of hapless everyman who finds himself unable to get home. So if you've not seen After Hours, I believe it's on Showtime. Check it out. It's one of Scorsese's unsung gems of a film. It's very, very funny. And next week, we'll have Griffin Dunn here to tell us everything about the making of that awesome comedy. And until then, I'll see you in Hollywood. Hollywood. 